to Hacking the Hustle. This is your host, Benjamin Sklar, and I am really excited to have Mark Potkowitz on the podcast. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing well, thanks, Benji. How are you? I'm doing well. Excited to have you on the show. So for thanks those for listening, yeah, for those listening, Mark is the current director of the Legal Innovation Center at Ulster University in Belfast, United Kingdom, Northern Ireland. And he's also an adjunct professor at Brooklyn Law School. And I've known Mark for a few years since attending Brooklyn Law. And I really respect the guy. And he has a really unique insights on the legal system and the world we live in today. So excited to have you on the show and throw you a bunch of questions. Uh, I am ready, Benji. Thank you for the kind introduction. And uh, hit me with them. My, so what is your title? My title? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, what is my title? So I have a list of about 30 questions that okay. I'm asking people doing market mm-hmm. research for Forge. And I'm going to ask you the same ones. So your sure. title could be adjunct professor or uh, director of the innovation center at the university you're at. Sure. So without getting into too much philosophy, it's an interesting question because it helps people self-select how they classify. Mm -hmm. And so at the moment, most of my time is spent as a director of the Legal Innovation Center at Ulster University in Belfast. But from time to time, I do serve as an adjunct professor of clinical law at Brooklyn Law School. So I guess my primary title, um, besides being an attorney, would be a director of the Legal Innovation Center at Ulster University. Got it. Nice. What industry do you work in? Uh, I work in law and education. What is your job role? So I oversee the day-to-day operations of the center at the university, in addition to running a master's program and teaching law classes to graduate students and undergraduates. That's, that sounds like a great responsibility. What is your product or service? So my service is primarily, that's an interesting way to describe it. Uh, my service to uh, is different to different audiences. So to the students, the service I deliver is education. Mm-hmm. To the, my colleagues, the service I deliver is bridging the gap between law and technology. Um, for the university, the service I deliver is running the center, which focuses on uh, educational programs, on applied research projects, and on just broad education of the public on issues at the center of law and technology. So it depends on, on who is receiving the service. Mm-hmm. I like that answer. How is your job measured? Oh, that's a very interesting. Um, so the UK educational system is somewhat different than the one in the United States. And there is a series of meetings we have on an annual basis where I sit down with the head of the law school and the head of research, and we go over targets and things that we expect from sort of the things that I would like to accomplish in the upcoming year. And so the way that my efficacy, in a sense, is measured relates to what the target goals that we, uh, we have. So I run a master's program. So it's easy to quantify those. It has to do with number of students. Uh, mm-hmm. I teach on several different courses. That's what they call different degree programs here. So I teach on the international commercial law with alternative dispute resolution master's program. Um, mm-hmm. I teach on the undergraduate law program. And so when it comes to um, there's other programs I teach on as well. So when it comes to those, you kind of measure the success of your students and how well they achieve what their goals are. It's Mm -hmm. a lot more difficult to become a solicitor or barrister here than in the US. In the US, you graduate from an accredited law school, you sit for the bar exam, you pass, you get sworn in. Here, it's a much more um, complicated system, I think. Um, And as a consequence, 
it somewhat is uh, unlikely that you'll have more than maybe 20 students become lawyers in Northern Ireland in a given year. And the population of Northern Ireland is about 1.8 million, I think. Can you give us so, a uh, brief rundown of the history of Northern Ireland? Oh gosh, no. <laughs> no, because it, nothing is brief about the history here. Uh, the long and short of it is that right now it is part of the United Kingdom. And it is a, uh, the island of Ireland is about the size of the state of Indiana. And Northern Ireland is about the size of Connecticut. And sits in kind of the northwestern part of the country. And it has, sorry, northeastern part of the country. Um, and it's a kind of tumultuous history um, going back to gosh, the 17th century, if not before. And then in the 20th century has been more kind of um, complicated with the partitioning. And there was large, long-term, low-scale guerrilla warfare, essentially, mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland until uh, the, even through the 1990s. You, know, you had bombings as recently as the 1990s, uh, where, where I mean bombings as in, you know, people, many people were killed and buildings destroyed. Since mm -hmm. then, you've had smaller bombings, a car being lit on fire, a car being exploded. What um, are they fighting about? The What's the conflict? Oh, gosh. Um, so the, the majority of the population in Northern Ireland is either Catholic or Protestant. And the Catholic, um, and, and Ireland is predominantly Catholic. So there is a, a division between the Catholics and the Protestants. They call it sectarian uh, division, sectarian mm -hmm. violence. But it more has to do with the fact that England is more Protestant and Ireland mm -hmm. is more Catholic. So even though it is sort of this, this veiled, and, and I'm totally butchering this history, and scholars <laughs> who know this area much better than I are going to be banging their walls and um, mm -hmm. you know, starting to compose tweets complaining about mm -hmm. the oversimplification and mischaracterization of the conflict. But uh, in, in short, a lot of it, some people argue, has more to do with the cultural elements between the British and the Irish. But mm -hmm. so people born in Northern Ireland have UK and Irish citizenship. Mm. Um, and there are there's a kind of complicated history and I, there's plenty of fantastic books about it of which I cannot name a single one it's not my mm -hmm. area um, but I will say that the Good Friday Accords were signed in 1998 which ended up creating a peace between the UK government and Sinn Féin which was a political arm of the Irish Republican Army so it has largely um, in my lifetime been something that has been relatively stable of course with Brexit depending on how it is that the United Kingdom ends up departing from the European Union, could have significant implications with respect to the border. Because <laughs> if the UK does finally withdraw, what you will have is the only land border between the United Kingdom and Europe will be the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And part of the Good Friday Accords, which again, were 1998, have a soft border between them. So then it becomes a huge nightmare for import experts uh, work on this and nor uh, when I categorize myself as one of the brilliant people out here doing things. So um, it's a really, really complicated issue. And you know, I, if, if it's something that you want to dive into, I can get you in touch with colleagues who work on this stuff. Fascinating. Yeah, I want to ask if you could shine light on the discrepancies between Catholicism and Protestantism. But I guess that's for another podcast. Yeah. So another question, what does it mean to be successful in your role? Oh, so uh, it depends on which of the hats I'm wearing. So as a director of the Legal Innovation Center, 
um, we just launched a new master's program where half the taught classes are in the School of Law, half the taught classes are in the School of Computing, Engineering, and Intelligence Systems. We did this in record time during a very difficult um, global period of a pandemic. So mm -hmm. we think that that was uh, something that was incredibly successful. Um, as a UK academic now, part of my remit is to publish papers and mm -hmm. have something uh, where they measure research and impact. So a lot of people focus on trying to publish papers in their various fields. Coming from policy background, I try to get more involved in policy-related matters. So far, I've already been in touch with um, aides working in New York State on a COVID-19 um, privacy law, as well as a new New York data privacy law that's in the works. So I think being successful is yeah keeping these programs running, making sure my students are happy and getting on to the careers that they want as well as identifying opportunities for applied and practical research and where necessary or where uh, the opportunity presents getting involved in policy matters. Very interesting. What would you say are your biggest challenges? So the challenges are legion. Um, you know, there are a lot of demands on my time that come from um, various ways that kind of the university does things. Um, and I'll elaborate on that slightly. You know, the programs are really different here. And so coming from the American educational and then subsequently the American legal educational system, uh, I would say that I'm at somewhat of a disadvantage from my colleagues who grew up in this system here because things are different. So a lot of the time there are things that wouldn't, I think, be a challenge to pursue at an American law school, which are a challenge here just because there are different ways that things are done. Mm -hmm. So some of it is adapting culturally to the sort of business culture of a university in the United Kingdom and adjusting to what it is that they require, um, as well as dealing with a different type of student. So as you and I both know, the American educational system is very expensive. American law schools are quite expensive. And so people who go to American law schools typically do it for a good reason. Uh, mm -hmm. Why would a lot of people, the majority, incur tremendous debt if law wasn't a career that they wanted to pursue? I mean, people go to law school with the expectation of becoming lawyers. Here, law is an undergraduate pursuit. And mm -hmm. my colleagues, many of uh, my colleagues aren't licensed lawyers. They have their master's in law. They have their PhDs in law. And some have practiced, but most have not. And so the way that they approach legal education is different. Furthermore, the undergraduates, as I mentioned before, do not have a high likelihood of becoming a lawyer because of the limited space for lawyers in the system in Northern Ireland. So as I said, maybe there might be 20 or 25. My numbers are, I need to double check, but those are the numbers that I've been given for how many people become a lawyer every year in Northern Ireland. As far as a solicitor, um, a solicitor is more of a transactional attorney, a barrister argues before a judge. So it's more like a litigator. Um, if we could do an analog. So I have a lot of students who are studying law because it's their undergraduate and they have no intention of becoming a lawyer. And so it's a lot harder to get them to engage, I think. Mm -hmm. Which do, system do you think is better? I think the American system is better uh, because, well, uh, I'll, I'll, I won't turn the podcast around, but you know, um, as a law student, did you find that your classmates were all people who were pre-law or philosophy majors. In college or law school? In law school. Oh, in law school, everyone has a different background, but they at Brooklyn Law, at least, everyone is ambitious and determined on being a practicing attorney. 
Well, but, but I'll, I'll go back to what you said is that they all come from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So when I was in law school, I had classmates who studied medicine, who studied mm-hmm. chemistry, who studied physics, engineering. I myself studied English literature and Spanish. Mm-hmm. Here, law is an undergraduate degree. So the people who go on to become lawyers will get their undergraduate in law and maybe their master's in law. And that's it. They have never studied another discipline at the university level. Mm-hmm. So there are not as many multidisciplinary lawyers. So you don't have lawyers who study computer science. You don't have lawyers who studied engineering. You don't have lawyers who studied chemistry. You don't mm-hmm. have lawyers who studied medicine. You have lawyers who just studied the law. Right. And Sounds as a consequence, well, it's just, it's kind of, it, it, it's, it's difficult to affect change in that system because you don't have people who know things beyond the law. Mm-hmm. So the master's program that I've created is unique because students can either graduate with a master's in law or a master's in computer science. Right. What and knowledge wouldn't, Sorry to cut you off. I was going to ask, what knowledge do you need to, to do your job? To do my job? Gosh, I, I well, I need a knowledge of law. Um, you know, I don't necessarily need a knowledge of the law of Northern Ireland or the law of the United Kingdom because I don't teach those. I've taught international intellectual property. I've taught something called law, politics, and governance. Um, but the majority of classes I teach relate specifically to law and technology. So mm-hmm. I don't not only need to know the law, I need to know the business of law as it's practiced in major global firms. I need to know the technology that's being used in major global professional services firms. I also need to have more than just a basic understanding of the technology, but a pretty advanced understanding of the technology. I need to lecture students on cryptography, on blockchain, on different strategies of machine learning. Uh, When I was in law school, I was able to take a class called internet law, Mm -hmm. but certainly in internet law, Uh, We didn't talk about spiking neural networks and natural language processing. I didn't need to understand how a supervised machine algorithm worked to to pass the bar exam. Mm -hmm. Um, But these are things that I teach my students, and these are things that I need to know. I was in a meeting with, how would I describe this? Um, There's a committee here that helps set the educational program for judges sitting on the bench. I'll tell you, there are about 90 judges in Northern Ireland. And I was in a meeting with one of the most senior judges in Northern Ireland and a colleague brought up a blockchain. And mm-hmm. so I was then asked to explain to a room of judges, you know, the youngest of whom was probably in her fifties, um, what blockchain was and not to be ageist in any way, shape or form. But as I mentioned, you don't have multidisciplinary lawyers here. Mm-hmm. So the idea of my having to, in a smaller jurisdiction, explain to a room of judges, including the second most senior judge in the entire area, you know, what Bitcoin is, mm-hmm. is a sort of challenging thing. And it reminds me of when I needed to have to explain to members of Congress how different pieces of technology work. So to answer the question, I need to know the law. I need to know the business of law. I need to know the technology. And I need to know and be able to explain complicated concepts in both law and technology to people who may only have a glancing familiarity with one of those subjects or may in fact be experts in only one of those subjects. And I need to be able to do this dynamically and in a way that an entire audience can understand. How do you learn about new information for your job? So there are um, a lot of sources, but a a lot of reading, Mm -hmm. a lot of reading. And the answer um, 10 years ago would have been almost only reading. Now, as we're moving toward a more video and audio, I mean, we're on a podcast right now. 
um, area. Uh, I need to look to other sources of, of good provenance to understand what's happening. There are some brilliant and really accomplished folks in their fields who no longer write as many papers as they once did because they have a podcast or they give a, a talk online. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so the Columbia University linguist John McWhorter has a podcast called Lexicon Valley. And he's somebody who's very erudite and, and was somebody who often would joke about how he didn't really respect the medium of podcast and would prefer to write and always thought of himself as a writer, but realizes that in order to reach a greater audience, podcast is the way to go. And so there are podcasts that I listen to by experts. There are lectures, videos that I watch by experts. There are trade journals that I keep an eye on um, in both law and technology. And on occasion, there are a few people on Twitter who I think are thought leaders in the field. And I will from time to time see what they're tweeting about to get a better sense of what the mm-hmm. avant-garde is. What blogs, publications, blogs are you reading? Oh, um, so I can send Podcast. you a list that maybe you could append mm-hmm. to the show notes. Okay. But as far, it depends on, but there, there are, there's so many. Um, so it really depends on the area that I'm trying mm-hmm. to look at. It's like the language log is a blog on linguistics that I look at. Mm-hmm. on a lot of national security policy <clears throat> and tech stuff. There's like the Just Security blog. There's Opinio Juris. Um, Lawrence Solom runs a blog whose name escapes me right now. Not Larry Solon, but Lawrence Solom. They often get confused for one another, but they're not the same person. Um, what, what, uh, associations, I, I what associations, what <clears throat> associations, social media networks do you participate in? Um, so I don't really use Facebook. Um, uh, I have one and I log in about two days after my birthday every year and post a note thanking everybody for the birthday mm-hmm. wishes. The number of people who wish me happy birthday declines every year because I don't engage with the platform. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I have Twitter. I'm not that active on it. Um, I will check it from time to time. I don't use Instagram or Tumblr or TikTok um, mm-hmm. or Snapchat. What about YouTube? Um, or any other Um uh, so I've been using YouTube for my lectures for my students. I don't make the lectures public. I post them as unlisted videos because I think that they have really good auto captioning abilities. Mm-hmm. So for um, widening access to students, some students have trouble with audio processing or other issues. And so being able to read subtitles rather than just listen mm-hmm. is optimal. And uh, I think that's also very helpful for students. There, there's uh, the, uh, I have several students who have, um, you know, who aren't as lucky as we are in, in the States in many ways and that, you know, mm-hmm. they might have to share a computer with a sibling mm-hmm. or they have very low bandwidth or, you know, so I, I knew of a student who didn't even actually have a computer, mm-hmm. um, you know, personal circumstances, didn't have a computer, family didn't have a computer. And so, uh, you know, he would, would use the computers at the university to do things. And when COVID hit and the university closed down, he needed to borrow a laptop from a, a, wor- a place where he was working. Mm-hmm. to be able to do his assignments. He had to write out two of his exams by hand. Wow. And so for somebody like him, you know, to be able to watch a, a lecture on, on his mobile phone, mm-hmm. YouTube would be so much better than needing to load some proprietary system that's only accessible from a computer. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, Mark, I want to change topics and ask you a different kind of question. So I want to learn about how did you end up where you are today? Tell me about your career process, your career path. Oh, well, Describe it to me. Um, Sure. So, well, I, I, I studied English literature, as I mentioned, in Spanish at university and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it. Um, I felt being able to write well and persuasively and structure clear and cogent arguments would help me in any career. And the first job I had was working for a foundation doing neuropsychiatric research in Argentina. 
Um, I, I took it largely because I had chosen not to study abroad as a student and regretted it. So I moved to Argentina and spent about a year working with this foundation. And it was kind of one of those things where it was the lowest person on the totem pole. There's a lot of different things I had to do. All my colleagues were fantastic. It was really cool being in Argentina. But, you know, did some interpretation, did some translation, did some tech stuff. And after that, ended up uh, moving back to the States, getting a job as a strategic consultant at a small consulting firm in New York that did strategic management, operational and IT consulting for law and professional service firms. And as a strategic consultant, I bridge the gap between our clients and the tech team. So mm -hmm. the tech people who, you know, were the rocket scientists who were able to set up all the complicated computer things. I understood everything they were doing on a conceptual level, but couldn't do it myself. The problem was that they didn't necessarily understand our client's business as well. And so you needed to have some sort of layer in between the clients, many of whom were lawyers or, you know, professional accountants, consultants, Wall Street types, mm -hmm. um, and really hardcore tech people. And so I realized that I had sort of um, an ability to be able to break down these hardcore tech concepts into things that our clients can understand. And so the analogies I used would be different for the lawyers than they were for the Wall Street types, et cetera. And from there, I, um, uh, we got hit by the Great Recession. I ended up getting laid off um, and got a job working for a software company that did electronic medical records. Really, really, really didn't like it. Um, so left that and ended up deciding to go to Washington, D.C. and kind of talked my way into an internship on Capitol Hill, bounced around, worked at a tax policy organization for a little while. And a friend of mine who knew that I knew tech introduced me to a lawyer named Bruce Fine because Bruce was involved in litigation and was having trouble um, serving the defendant who at the time was a sitting head of state for a foreign country. So he was suing a sitting head of state for extrajudicial killings under a law called the Torture Victim Protection Act. And so I met with Bruce on a Saturday um, and he started talking about rule 4F section three of the federal rules of civil procedure, which is a motion for alternative service that we needed to do because it needed to satisfy the Mullane standard, which was Mullane v. Hanover Central Bank and Trust, a Supreme Court case from I think 1952. And you know we had issues with the restatement third law of foreign relations. And what we were really doing was suing this guy for torture, which is a universal crime. And if any, the, the second circuit opinion by Judge Kaufman in Florida, Gavi Pena Arala, and then read the restatement third law of foreign relations. And it was kind of this soup of words of all these things that were just, I was trying to write everything down and um, I'll kind of skip ahead where we got to the point where I started telling me about myself and then I studied English literature. And he said, did you ever read any um, Dryden? And I said, oh, I studied under uh, Professor Zwicker who was the editor of the Cambridge Companion to John Dryden. He said, oh, did you ever read any Johnson? And I said, Ben Johnson or Samuel Johnson? And we spent the next 45 minutes talking about 17th century English literature. So, gosh, I went home and I started to read up all of the things that he had mentioned and they didn't really make sense to me, but they referenced other things and I read those things and I read the things that they referenced and started just piecing through and understanding all the stuff that he had mentioned. And then did a bunch of research and came up with things that I thought satisfied the standard for alternative service and drafted a motion. And then worked for Bruce for several years before it got to the point where people confused me for an attorney, so I decided to become one. Um, you know, after finishing law school and passing the bar, I wasn't sure that I wanted to kind of go the traditional route at a big firm and cut my teeth doing kind of discovery stuff. I was a little older when I went to law school and didn't think that at that point in my life, it would make sense to just disappear for several years, you know, just to, to kind of put in all the hours that you need to go that track and thought that my skill set would be 
better applied elsewhere. So I kind of cobbled together a few things. I was doing consulting for a company in Canada um, that was building tools for people who represent themselves in court. I was doing some work at Brooklyn Law School as a legal technology fellow and working with uh, Professor Askin, Professor Jonathan Askin in the Brooklyn Law Incubator and Policy or Blip Clinic. Um, I got hired by a retired judge to ghostwrite a book on jurisprudence for him and was working on that for a while. Did some consulting stuff in DC. Did a lot of work around privacy and the general data protection regulation where my clients were in-house lawyers. Um, I should say that after passing the bar, I didn't bother to get sworn in for a few years because nothing I was doing required that I actually be licensed attorney. So rather than taking on clients and getting malpractice insurance in with all the paperwork, I just consulted for lawyers who were in-house on privacy issues to give them the information they needed to make the best decisions. And was getting kind of tired of having to keep switching modes, you know, having to be on a conference call with colleagues in Canada to talk about tools for helping pro se litigants and then switching and working on a book for a few hours before hopping on a call with people in Washington on a policy issue it was too much. And so I was trying to figure out what my next steps were and had the opportunity um, to move to Northern Ireland to run up this, uh, run this legal innovation center. So that's what I did and that's where I am. Fascinating. That's an amazing path you've taken. What's one thing you wish you had known when you began your career? Oh, so well, I guess that's really, um, yeah. So uh, my career is sort of, have you heard of the anthropic principle? No. So um, in kind of biology and, and science and, and the rest of it, you know, in, in the search for extraterrestrial life and all this other stuff, you know, we talk about humanity a lot and people try to argue, you know, angels on the head of a pin about why all the kind of the secret sauce was perfect for life to start on earth. And there are some people that say, well, it was perfect for life to start on earth because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you know, to try to reverse engineer and figure out how this all happened, they say is kind of a bit silly because it happened, right? That's, that's why we're here to talk about it. If it had been slightly different, it wouldn't have happened. So that has to do with this anthropic principle that, that, you know, it's not a, the reason it's a coincidence that life was, uh, you know, that earth was perfect for the creation of life was that, you know, it happened here. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about my career, it's kind of like, well, it, it happened that way. It wasn't as though when I finished, uh, you know, graduating from university, I sat down and said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move to South America, then I'm going to work <laughs> in consulting, then I'm going to work in software. <laughs> no, it, it sort of just, there were things that happened. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were like the Great Recession was something that was like super significant that I couldn't really have avoided, right? COVID-19 is something that's happening right now that's going to affect a lot of people's career paths. Mm -hmm. That in retrospect, it's easy for me to look back and kind of point out that this was the thread. The thread was my communicating complicated issues of uh, through technology. Mm -hmm. um, but that's sort of a reverse engineering to explain how I got here. It wasn't necessarily a plan. So I think that the, uh, the things that I wish I would have known before embarking on this is you know that that no matter what you know no matter what you think you're capable of um, you you will always need to cut your teeth that there aren't shortcuts there aren't ways necessarily and to skip ahead mm -hmm. just because you think you're capable of doing things at a higher level that you need to be able to demonstrate that and sometimes you need to be able to demonstrate it more than once so if I, I would tell my younger self to be a little more patient with people and, you know, to, to recognize that 
um, not everybody's sort of just going to take your word for it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I like that advice a lot. What's one common myth about your profession or field that you would like to debunk? Well, there's things that I'm working on debunking. Um, one of the things that I take a lot of pride in is that when I speak to colleagues in the computing schools, so either the School of Computing on one campus or the School of Computing Engineering and Intelligence Systems on the other campus, they always say, well, you don't sound like a lawyer. And I take that as a compliment because mm -hmm. there seems to be a lot of pejorative connotations and associations with the idea of what a lawyer is. Mm -hmm. I'm working on a paper right now that explores how legal language, I argue, is almost essentially a different language from English. Uh, you know, there were legal dictionaries before there were monolingual English dictionaries. Um, and a lot of lay people get really confused and bogged down with legal terms. You know, Charles Dickens writing in the 1850s in Bleak House talked about walls of words and, you know, precedent and people tripping up one another. Mm -hmm. And so he was kind of satirizing how lawyers have a tendency to obfuscate things by burying them in complex legal language. I mean, what, what, what other context would we use the phrase hitherto or hereunto? You know, it, <laughs> right. it, it's so ridiculous, you know, um, uh, including um, or otherwise, um, what are some of the other ones? Uh, including, but not limited to, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there are these kind of bizarre terms of art that we employ as part of practice, which I think a lot of people look at and kind of roll their eyes and just say, oh, that's all the legalese. I have rolled my eyes at it and I'm a law student because I think it's irrelevant. And the reason that the contracts are written that way is because the lawyers want to protect their profession and uh, keep it difficult so that the layman can't say that they can do it themselves. Well, I think it's, that's a little cynical and I would partly agree with you. Um, I also think that in a time when we were shackled to paper and paper forms and paper filings, Mm -hmm. You needed to use these highly specialized terms of art to convey a particular legal meaning. So in property law, you know, you have fee simple determinable and fee simple absolute, which are very <laughs> specific things and they're very different. Mm -hmm. um, but this isn't a situation where we are, you know, kind of talking around an issue. Those have very particular meaning to lawyers and that's why they're employed in that way. Are you so, a lawyer uh, in fee simple determinable? Or are you a lawyer in fee simple absolute? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the argument would be that 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 my, that my bar license is probably something <laughs> to which I have a fee simple determinable <laughs> relationship. Um, you know, I wish it were fee simple absolute. That way, I wouldn't have to continue to pay bar dues. Although, I guess somebody could argue that those are essentially how much are the bar dues? Darn CLEs. I don't even remember. I just I just write a check. All right. I mean, they're, they're not they're not crazy. They're not crazy. But maintaining mm -hmm. multiple licenses would kind of begin to accrue. Mm -hmm. Mark, what, what are some areas of, that you're interested in? What are you researching right now? What are you curious about? Um, so lately, I've been doing a lot of research on linguistics and language. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do is come up with a sort of new-ish language for law, um, which uses a combination of words and, and symbols, kind of like formal or propositional logic. The idea being that we have so many standard contract clauses uh, that rather than uh, have something, I'll give an example. So for your audience, there's something called a severability clause. The severability clause is a clause contained within a contract 
that essentially says if any court of competent jurisdiction or tribunal determines that a clause within this contract is unlawful or unenforceable, the remainder of the contract remains in force. Mm -hmm. So the idea being that let's say that we have some clause in it that says oh, payment must be remitted, you know, every, any day of the week or, you know, from 10 business days from whatever event. And let's say some jurisdiction says you can't conduct business on Sunday. They may invalidate that clause on the grounds that it could fall on a Sunday. So um, in their, under kind of standard contract law, if, if one clause is determined to be invalid, it could invalidate the entire contract. But the severability clause says if one clause has to go because of some rules of a place, it doesn't void the whole contract. That is like, if a contract doesn't have a severability clause, then that's a problem. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. So my question is, why on earth then do we have to have a severability clause in every contract? Why can't we just throw in the word severability and just presume that we all understand that that means the same thing? See what I'm saying? Right. And so there are all kinds of other provisions uh, like that in a contract. So the idea would be that you could take some certain standard clauses and provisions, express them in a way that isn't just a wall of words as Dickens used. And then we could represent that somehow symbolically. Uh, when I say symbolically, um, just using some sort of formal language, whether it's you know, mathematical symbols, what have you, I don't really care. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I can write the contract in English and in parallel in this symbolic legal language. And then if you need that in Spanish, we can just run off a Spanish copy because we're not looking at the English language and translating it into Spanish. We're looking at the structured formal legal language, almost like computer code. Mm -hmm. that can then be instantly translated into any other language fascinating that gonna make sense yeah it does that's really good and it can't work. yeah it's not going to be able i'm not going to do it for all law at first right mm -hmm. but there are certain areas like in contract where we can begin to move toward this sort of a thing mm -hmm. and so i'm reading a lot about languages language and linguistics at the moment and researching that um, also doing a lot of looking at um, early customary international law going back to like hammurabi's code in exploring the evolution of merit of customary international law, which in the early days was maritime law and how that sort of influenced aviation law and how all of that influenced the laws regarding cyberspace. And then looking at how that uh, and projecting as to how that's going to influence law in outer space. Wow. That's fascinating. Like, when was the last time on earth, some country planted a flag somewhere and said, we claim this land in the name of pick a jurisdiction. But we can't do that on the moon. There are international treaties between the USSR and the United States and whatever. But if somebody, there's an asteroid that comes within a reasonable distance, is it going to be a race to plant a flag? What do you think? You know, it's not as, I don't know. Because, I mean, you're going to have companies that are uh, private actors, necessar not necessarily state actors, who have an interest in mining asteroids, for instance. Like SpaceX. And it's, sure, it's a great example. Um, and there could be countries in other jurisdictions as well, besides the United States. Even if there are two different com companies in the United States, like Blue Origin and SpaceX, let's say. Well, uh, it's not as though there's going to be a secret asteroid that they detect. Other companies are going to detect that an asteroid is going to come within range of whatever systems. So, uh, and because of the position of the Earth and the rotation, there'll be a certain optimal time to launch, right? Mm -hmm. So essentially, in a very short period, you're going to have several potentially different companies launching rockets around the same time, probably within the same 24-hour period, or at least within the same week, to try to get to a part in space where the asteroid is going to be so that they can begin to mine it. 
So the question becomes, what happens out there? You know, what, what about collisions? Uh, in 2009, two satellites collided for the first time. That is one heck of a torque case. You know, uh, these booster rockets are kind of debris in space. So what happens if one of a booster rocket by SpaceX ends up knocking off some, I don't know, Sirius XM radio telecom satellite? Um, you know, if we start to get to the point where we can potentially colonize Mars, you know, uh, are the people who go there going to be subject to the rules of another jurisdiction? So there are, the way that we build on law is look at existing precedent and figure out what legal structures fit, which is why the early form of international law was maritime law and why aviation law is largely based on maritime law. Besides you, who else I, is thinking about this? Um, there's a guy named Gus Hurwitz. Um, I think he's in Nebraska who thinks about this stuff. There's a few others. Um, so let me ch let's turn the page and entering our fourth quarter of the podcast. I'm going to throw questions at you mm -hmm. and you're going to give me the answers and we'll make it a lightning round. Lightning round. That's the word okay. I've been looking for this whole time. Okay. Um, what is your favorite non-business book? Favorite non-business book. Oh gosh, that's really hard. Um, so I guess literature, I'll say remains of the day, <clears throat> offbeat, nonfiction. I'll say uh, it's something like a short history of everything, something like that by Bill Bryson. Sorry, that, that, that is that that's non-business non-fiction. Sorry, you said non-business non-fiction. Well, because my next question is, what's your favorite business book or business okay. and law related book? Okay. Um. So so yeah. So a favorite business non-fiction, a short history of nearly everything, something like that by Bill Bryson. Um. Favorite law. Favorite law. Favorite law book uh, or business book. Gosh. Um. Uh, can I come back to that? Yeah. Okay. If you could live in one city, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, I had a blast in 2001 um, when I was in Barcelona. Same. I had the one abroad there. Great, great town. See, but I was, I was, I turned 17 mm -hmm. um, that trip. And so we could drink. Uh, <laughs> and so it was really novel as an American to be able to go to a bar before you were 21. Yeah. yeah. But when yeah. I went abroad there, we would go out six nights a week. Can you imagine? I can't imagine going out one night a week now. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite movie? So there are a few movies that if they're they're on, I'll just keep watching them. Back to the Future, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, Indiana Jones, either Raiders or Last Crusade. Nice. All right. So here's my signature question. If there's one thing you could do to improve this this world, the world we live in today, what would you do and why? <clears throat> um, one thing I could do to improve the world. Uh, I think that um, education is incredibly important. So I would try to come up with a way to provide high quality, high caliber education to everybody. Mm -hmm. Because I rarely have seen um, conflict on a grand scale between highly educated people. Mm -hmm. Granted, I mean, you right now, not to get political, but you have highly educated people who are kind of more along uh, left of center and highly educated people who are more right of center and they seem not to get along very well. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is a lot of misconception that comes from ignorance. Mm -hmm. And I feel that education is probably um, not a panacea, but hopefully a, a cure mm -hmm. or, or can ameliorate ignorance. And what kind of education? I'm assuming it's not 
more knowledge in physics and astrology, but rather religion and politics. Let's, let's say physics and astronomy. Um, I wouldn't call astrology um, All right. a significant, a significant um, element of education. Um, gosh, yeah. Well, I think that it's, it's across, across the gamut. Um, you know, we have politicized everything. So right now, languages are politicized. Science is politicized. Um, a culture has become politicized. And I find that the people to whom I speak who seem to be the more, most knowledgeable across a broad spectrum of issues and above knowledge spheres tend to have the more interesting and holistic perspectives mm -hmm. because of the large swath of things to which they've been exposed through education. Who do you consider very well educated? Someone or three, give me three names, people that you admire and, and look, look to for more information, more knowledge. Um, sure. Uh, Steven Pinker is an experimental psychologist and linguist mm -hmm. who does a lot on human language and human cognition, has written some spectacular books, and I think is one of the most interesting folks out there today. Um, there's a guy named Sam Harris who has his own podcast right now. Mm -hmm. Um, who I don't always agree with, but I think that he is very interested and focused on having conversations. Mm -hmm. So the way that he often structures his multi-hour interviews with people isn't, uh, isn't to have a debate or to try to prove anybody wrong or try to convince everybody of something. Mm -hmm. It's to have a discussion with somebody to try to better mm -hmm. understand what their thoughts are or where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, and I guess the... Um, uh, another person that I'll mention is um, well, uh, Stephen Fry, who is an actor and a humorist. Um, you may be familiar with him. He's played in a lot of different things. Um, you know, a lot of you know, I may draw some flack because you know all the people I've kind of pointed to are middle-aged white men. Um, but uh, you know, Fry has been very successful in his career, which mm -hmm. affords him the opportunity for the type of leisure. And, and introspection and retrospection mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people don't have. And as a mm -hmm. consequence, I think he has some really interesting thoughts. And I like the way that he, like the other two I've mentioned, doesn't shy away from controversial issues, but really tries to dive into them and explore them. Interesting. I'm curious, if you had your own podcast, how would you structure the interviews? How would you go about asking questions? Because I'm trying to improve my podcasting approach. So I, I will say that I'm a terrible interviewer. Um, because I often tend to think that I know more than my guests, which is an awful thing, but it's something that I recognize about myself. Mm -hmm. And I, well, I'm kind of, you know, that's not always the case, mm -hmm. but um, I, I think that, well, uh, you know, you have not interrupted me, um, which is good, I guess, for the purposes of the podcast, but I tend to go on long. So perhaps mm -hmm. maybe you should be interrupting me to keep things on track because we've scheduled a, a limited time. I can keep going if you have the time. I understand that we had scheduled a block and I have a few more yeah. minutes that I can go on because in quarter four, we only have a few minutes left. So mm -hmm. no, um, I can't. Yeah, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have bankruptcy class right around the corner. Okay. So um, yeah, but I mean, so there certainly are, um, challenges to hosting a, a podcast. And if I hosted it, I mean, I, I, a lot of the podcasts I listened to with more than one host mm -hmm. have regular segments. So mm -hmm. as a listener, I know that certain things are going to happen when they introduce a particular segment. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'll, I'll think about right. that and get back to you.
I liked how the lightning round. That's a new term I'm going to use mm-hmm. and uh, I'll keep you posted, but it was such an honor to have you on the podcast, Mark. I think you're incredibly bright. I'd love to hang out with you every day. I feel like the saying of you, you are who the people you are, the combination of the people you hang out with. I'd love to hang out with you more and, and broaden my horizons. So thanks for really hopping on the show and I'll see you in class next time. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I will point out that, you know, the changes in technology allow us to have this conversation. You're, you're sitting on the East coast of the United States. I'm sitting on the East coast of Ireland. Incredible. And the four hour time difference right now because of the daylight savings jump, it'll be five hours next week. Amazing. I love it. Keep me posted when you're, when you're figuring out how the jurisdiction law is going to work on, on the moon and Mars. I want to get involved with that. Absolutely. I'll keep you posted. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Take care. See you, Mark. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Mark Podkowitz. If you got some value out of it, please leave a comment and click subscribe. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.